This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So perhaps you have read that Washington Post opinion piece, I Was Wrong About Trump, Here's Why, by Anthony Scaramucci. I have not. I've been meaning to. But first, I wanted to share a piece with you that we here at The Gist have commissioned. It was written by a major player in another administration that the mainstream media wants you to think was up to no good. Let us play a clip of the guest columnist. You've certainly seen him. He's gotten a lot of screen time. And then we will get right into this piece. Well, 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 Banzai, what have we got here? Mm, I don't know, Shenzi. Uh, what do you think, Ed? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just what I was thinking. Yeah, did, do I talk into this thing? Yes, just right into that, Banzai. Okay, uh, here is my opinion piece. I sure whiffed on Scar. Let me tell you how that happened by Banzai. I grew up in a large hyena pride on Hyena Island, and while we never starved, I mean, there was always a carcass of a jackal or some other hyena, you know how, how that goes, we were by no means comfortable. Fortunately, I was clever enough to get into Scarford, and I made my bones, I lived in those bones in the financial markets, which was weirdly hospitable to hyenas, and it was there that I first came across and grew enamored by, and yeah, I'm also going to say inspired by Scar. I always felt that the kind of folks I grew up with, simple, hardworking, scavenger dogs of the Serengeti, had found a champion in a guy like Scar. Unlike the supercilious Mustafa and the naive, everything handed to him from birth Simba, who, let's face it, cannot be trusted on matters of national security. At times, my public obsequiousness to Scar belied private misgivings. And I have to say, in retrospect, his loud, frequent, and clear boasts of being an evil lion who wished to murder his brother should have been taken both literally and seriously. I thought Skull would be pragmatic and an outside-the-box thinker who, like me, shared a suspicion of medicine baboons. And I also should have overlooked his majestic sweeping mane. I should have taken more seriously his hissing, snarling obsession with fratricide, regicide, and filicide. Leocide, specifically. That is the form of filicide he was, he was keen on committing. I was wrong. And yes, let me say that Timon and the flatulent warthog told me as much all along. I admit that now. I've been accused of turning on Scar only because he turned on us, then fell off the pride rock, and hey, I'm a scavenger, you know. But this is not the case. I see that Scar has over the years squandered the resources of the pride lands, and I challenge my fellow hyenas to search their souls and do what hyenas are known for, which is to be moral in a serious, non-skulking, and in no way menacing manner. You know, be a hyena. And also, let me say, if there are any openings for, say, a clever filiform carnivoran mammal in the Simba administration, I would gladly serve. Because it is like that famous song that frames my very existence, yet gives me no residuals. It is the circle of life. 
Is that good? Yes, that was very good, Banzai. I don't know what that was you were snacking on, but ugh, could you please just take it out of the studio with you? On the show today, it's me. It's me, Mike. It's not. It's not that hyena guy. On the show today, I spiel about a Trump press conference that you would not believe if we haven't lived through it for the last two years. But first, you know, I like smart people, but I also like smart people who think about smart people and figure out ways they might not be so smart. David Robson is such a man. He's here to talk about his book, The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Smart people act stupid. This is not just a fact that we all know. It's a fact we're pretty gleeful about. Witness the Gary Larson cartoon about the school for the gifted. Don't know it? Google it. Okay, I'm in the Democratic debate for a second. Anyway, smart people acting stupid, I've always thought, has an explanation that lays in the word, the two-word phrase, smart people. And it is the second word. It's that they're people. And all people are susceptible to what we would broadly call stupid thinking, which are cognitive mistakes, which are flaws in logic, but which are also failure to consider and self-reflect. Well, David Robson, in his new book, The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes, talks about this, but he goes further and he lays out areas where it might be the smartness itself that's getting in the way of the good decision. Hello, David. Thank you for coming on The Gist. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I read the original BBC article that sparked your interest, and it was about these terribly named group of people named the termites. Mm, Who were the termites? So uh, these were like... um study participants in a study by this guy called Lewis Terman. So the name comes from his name. Yeah. Because over the years, it was a longitudinal study that went over decades. And, you know, he formed a very close bond with them, which is why they're called the termites. And his idea was to collect a group of people who were kind of geniuses, according to this new IQ test or intelligence test. So they all had IQs higher than 135. Most of them had IQs higher than 140. And he really wanted to see just how well, they performed in all areas of life, how good their health was, but also how they succeeded. In and he careers. identified them as young people in what decade? That's right. So it was in the 1920s. Right. And they were, you know, all starting like elementary school. I think the age range was probably between like five and nine or something like that. Right. And they went and, and I don't know if it was normed for us for their their status, their social status or the, the opportunities that they would have from economics. But it is true that most of them went on to much greater earnings than average. Yeah, that's right. So I would say it wasn't actually very well controlled for their it's economic background. What are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's very much a product of its time. Um, and they did perform kind of better than the kind of average population, but probably not as good as you would have hoped, given that they were so-called geniuses. So, you know, a lot of them made it into the kind of who's who of America, but, you know, lots of them didn't as well. So there was always this kind of disappointment or almost by the end of this study that they just hadn't quite done as well as Terman had hoped at the beginning. Well, so a number of questions pop to mind. One is, 
and this is a question that you talk about and that I thought about a lot in the book. Does some of the disappointment, if, if the theory, if the reason that it's interesting is that, oh, it is a little disappointing and many of them underachieved, is that because we had too much riding on the definition of IQ or how they defined it then? Now we have a broader definition and maybe we were narrowly defining IQ in a way that actually when you really think about it, sh- we wouldn't think necessarily would lead to greater success in many cases. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, Lewis Terman had said at the time that IQ was like the one single thing that was the most important factor in anyone's life. And, you know, not just with like their kind of academic success, but he really thought it underlined creativity and morality. Um, And I think really his study was one of the first to kind of show that actually that isn't true and that so many other factors are going to influence it. And some of it is just luck or personal choice. But, you know, also I think psychologists now really looking at those other traits that are important as well as the skills we measure with IQ tests. They're also essential for success in whatever field you're trying to achieve in. I find with so many studies in the book that the studies are the study and you should have some caveats with them. But then when they extrapolate why, it's just some guess that I could have come up with quite easily. Like what you said, maybe it is because uh, someone with a high verbal ability would be able to verbalize their feelings, but it's quite likely that it's something else. And there's no way to test that that's the explanation. No, I mean, I would say that's a fair criticism of that study. I think, though, when you do look at the whole kind of range of research that I cover in the book, you do see this very clear picture emerging, which is that, um, you know, we do need to look beyond the kind of more abstract or memory skills that we've kind of cultivated and measured in education. And we have to look at these other kind of abilities. So one example that I find really interesting is this um, kind of it's part of the creative intelligence that um, Robert Sternberg talks about, but it's the capacity for counterfactual thinking. So that's really just looking at kind of what if scenarios. So, you know, what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had won the election? How would she have responded to world events? And that might seem, you know, you might think, well, why do we care about these fictional ideas? But actually, that's really important for problem solving to be able to consider all the possibilities that are ahead of you. And that's something that we don't really encourage in schools, but can be taught and is could be really profound in, in later life. Right. And in fact, there are a lot of theories about IQ that what you're talking about there, which is a form of abstract thinking, counterfactual thinking, every uh, societal rise in IQ, which is documented, is basically because we just think abstractly more than we ever did. That a primitive society would not have to understand imagining something other than the canoe right right before them. But now everything that we do with computers and talking to people who aren't in the room, it's some form of abstract thought. Yeah, that's right. And so actually, I would say that we, so this is called the Flynn effect. You know, we've seen this kind of 30 point increase over the last 80 years. So, you know, really substantial. Someone who is average at the time of the Terman study would be almost a genius by now. So really substantial. But I think that is a very narrow set of skills that we've really refined. And even though counterfactual thinking is a form of abstract thinking, I would say actually the abstract skills that we've kind of cultivated for the to produce the Flynn effect are actually even narrower than that. So that would be much more like pattern recognition or, you know, like recognizing kind of symbols and being able to follow kind of the rules on your smartphone, like that kind of thinking, rather than necessarily that more sophisticated way of reasoning that's considering lots of different hypotheses all at once. We've had a 30-point rise in IQ. Have we had the concomitant decline in mistakes? 
No, well, I mean, I would say absolutely not. I mean, I know thinkers like Steven Pinker have shown that we have seen some really important improvements, you know, in like a decrease in kind of certain types of crime. And obviously it has brought some scientific um, improvements and, you know, like uh, reductions in infant mortality. But I would say that in other areas, we don't see any kind of reduction at all. So in politics, it's just as polarised or even more polarised than it ever was in the past. And there are still huge numbers of people who are climate change deniers Mm. or who are anti-vaxxers and who reject like uh, the scientific consensus. And I would say that shows that the rise in IQ alone has not made people kind of wiser, more rational thinkers. So this, this dogmatism, this belief in your own intelligence... Would that be related to the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah, that's right. So it's kind of the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect in a way. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is this idea that, um, you know, kind of stupid people or, you know, people with less um, knowledge in a particular area kind of overestimate their uh, capabilities in that area. And, you know, that's been shown certainly amongst, like, um, students or, you know, when you give people kind of tests of grammar, like the people who perform worse actually think they're going to be in, like, the top percentile yeah but um or as they would say the toppest percentile (laughs) exactly yeah yeah whereas this actually shows that in lots of situations um we can even experts can overestimate their expertise and kind of yeah fail to kind of recognize the limits of the knowledge and one reason is this uh phenomenon called meta forgetfulness so (laughs) that's like you don't really realize how much you've forgotten so you know i studied mathematics at cambridge university but now i I probably have forgotten like, you know, 90% of what I learned. Um, but I'm kind of, having looked at this research, I'm kind of aware of that fact. But when they've questioned most graduates, they don't really realise just how much they've forgotten. They still think they have like that peak level of knowledge that is just continued in the decades afterwards. And so that then can lead to that earned dogmatism because you have the perception that you're an expert, but actually you just don't know as much as you think you do. This gets to a question I've had for a long time because I've never been a stupid person. So I don't know how stupid people navigate the world. But it is true, your book shows, I think we all realize that maybe very smart people overestimate their abilities and then and say things to themselves like, well, I could do this and I'm smart or why wouldn't I be able to get this? I'm a smart person. And it's also true that, you know, more than half the people think they're more intelligent than average. But are, I'm not talking about very cognitively impaired people, but are generally stupid people more apt to say, well, what, did I, what would I know? I'm a stupid person. Or would they only apply that to a very technical situation? Like, I don't know about computers. But just in navigating the world, are stupid people more humble about their abilities to not make cognitive errors? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Although there is this um, thing called the bias blind spot, okay. which is important. And so that's, that is this ability to kind of recognize if you're, you suffer from cognitive errors. And they have shown that actually... The higher your IQ, the kind of bigger your cognitive blind spot. So in a way, that does speak to what you're talking about. Now, it was quite a small effect. So it's, um, you know, like there's not much of a difference between people at all levels of IQ. But it still is the case that people who maybe have always just performed well in exams, they've always been told they're smart, then do just kind of assume that even with these kind of cognitive biases that people like Daniel Kahneman have studied, they just assume, well, like, that doesn't apply to me. Right. Um, There are some walks of life that just the confidence in you having a trait, in fact, makes the trait come true. Like a very 
good-looking person or someone who thinks they're very good-looking might exude confidence and therefore be able to attract other good-looking mates, right? Mm. I think there's something like that in intelligence, which is Steve Jobs is very smart, but also he's really, really sure that he's very smart. But that certainty probably could come back to bite him, but it probably generally helped him in his career, which was based on being a smart guy in the world of business and tech. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, I think Steve Jobs is the perfect example of this because he he was a man who... Like, uh, how can I put this? You know, he had very strong intuitions and, you know, like that kind of genius creativity. And he was so certain that he was right. And right. his his friends kind of talked about, I can't remember what it was exactly, like this, um, his ability to kind of bend reality to his will in the way that you suggested, you know. And he really got his own way and succeeded so well because of that, because he often was right. But then that really backfired when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Because yeah. He just completely, like, wanted to turn a blind eye to it. And then he believed that he could, like, you know, if he went on this kind of pure vegetable diet or, you know, turn to kind of these quack cures, that that would fix him. And actually, like, doctors really believed that if he had just had the surgery straight away, that he may well have survived. And it's like this kind of tragedy that the kind of genius that was helping him so much in his career, like, was also uh, may have, like, knocked decades off of his life. There's a, there's a large part of the book that talks about, I would say, some areas that seem like intelligence but are slightly different. Wisdom. Mm. And then there's even, they said of FDR, he had a second-rate intellect but a first-rate temperament. I don't know that temperament is used as a word that much these days, but there's something to that. Disposition? I don't know if this has any meaning. In the book, you talk about Aristotle's definition of wisdom, for instance. But when we say that, what do we mean and is there something to that? Yeah, so this was something that uh, I guess before I wrote the book, I was quite sceptical that you could ever kind of scientifically define and test wisdom. But there has been this really fascinating research by Igor Grossman at the University of Waterloo, who's tried to come up with a, a more robust way of measuring what wise reasoning might be. So he looks at all of the philosophy and then he kind of Uh, came up with these different traits that he considers to constitute wise reasoning. So the most important, I think, from my point of view, is intellectual humility. So that is just that capacity to recognise that you might not know everything straight away, that there's more... Um, there's more information out there that might disagree with your assumptions that you need to interrogate. Uh, There's also perspective taking. So just how well can you kind of consider the different viewpoints in a situation and weigh them up? And it doesn't mean you always have to agree with everything they say, but you just have to take them into consideration and question whether actually there might be some something to it. Um, So he came up with this kind of definition and then he puts people through these tests where they Uh, reason out loud about different problems. It could be uh, political issues. You know, I think at the time he asked them to talk about the annexation of Crimea, for instance, or personal kind of dilemmas taken from a Dear Abby Agony Aunt column. And psychologists would kind of rate them on these different qualities. And then he looked at how well those scores would relate to kind of people's overall life satisfaction or health or well-being. And he found there was actually a very good correlation there. And it it proved to be more uh, predictive of someone's well-being than IQ. So it did seem to measure something important about the way they were making decisions within their life and kind of the insight they had on their own thoughts and feelings. And as a hopeful measure, you could teach this just like you could teach the counterfactual reasoning and that leads to fewer mistakes. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And there are some kind of tricks that people can use, you know, that kind of have an instantaneous benefit. So one of them is, uh, it sounds a little bit odd, but it's talking to yourself in the third person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like if I was having a problem at work, I'd start it out by saying like, oh, David is very frustrated because of this and this and this. And that um, is known as um, self-distancing because it helps you to just take a step back and stops those kind of emotional factors yeah. uh, from Except our your president thinking. will say, not until Trump, he'll talk about himself. Yeah, so exactly. so it's not always <laughs> helping you. Or yeah, 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 yeah. That does bother me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in general, like amongst normal participants, it does seem to be very effective at making people a little bit more intellectually humble, more able to look at different perspectives. And uh, yeah, it seems to be like uh, one very sure trick to, to just, uh, in the moment, change the way you're thinking. The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes is the book. David Robson has been my guest and is the author. Thank you, David. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And now the spiel. The helicopter blades were all a whirl, which means that Donald Trump was in a talky mood. He began his press conference, what do we call these things? With a clear-eyed, honest, believable assessment of the top issue of the day. So the economy is doing very, very well. Okay, the experts say that will not be the case for long. But I have to say, I'm totally fine with that. That is, in fact, the president's job. Every president talks up the economy, no matter how the economy is doing. You never say the economy is doing bad before it's abundantly clear that the economy is doing bad. Lying about the health of the economy is the one presidential thing Donald Trump does. And the economy does indeed have record low unemployment. Except... I think there's one job he wants to actually eliminate, and that's my job. I mean, do you really need me to fact check or point out inconsistencies or crack wise or underline absurdities when the president says this? And by the way, we're holding thousands of ISIS fighters right now, and Europe has to take them. And if Europe doesn't take them... And if Europe doesn't take them... I'll have no choice but to release them into the countries from which they came, which is Germany and France and other places. Yeah. If Europe doesn't take them, we'll just force them on Germany and France. You don't need me here, do you? No, you do not. The president wasn't just set on giving to Europe. He also wanted something from Europe, specifically the part of Europe we call Denmark and the part of Denmark they call Greenland. A lot of people are calling it Greenland. When Denmark demurred on this offer, I don't know, a leaked uh, quote, when Denmark demurred, Trump got what the kids call butthurt. Because it wasn't just that they turned down his very wise and well-thought-out offer to buy Greenland. No, it was the harsh and scathing terms that our president could not abide from their prime minister. Yeah, no, Denmark, I looked forward to going, but I thought that the prime minister's statement that it was absurd, that was a, it was an absurd idea, was nasty. I thought it was an inappropriate statement. All she had to do is say, no, we wouldn't be interested, but... We can't treat the United States of America the way they treated us under President Obama. Uh, I thought it was a very uh, not nice way of saying something. They could have told me no. Our very proper president, who very much objects to the very not nice ways of speaking to other countries, be they shithole countries or non-shithole countries, the message, don't be very not nice. This word, absurd, you know, it wasn't just insulting to him. 
it was insulting to America. All they had to do is say, no, we'd rather not do that, or we'd rather not talk about it. Don't say what an absurd idea that is, because she's not talking to me. Excuse me. She's not talking to me. She's talking to the United States of America. You don't talk to the United States that way. Got it. Okay. So when the president has a terrible idea, that means we all have a terrible idea. When he has theories about windmills causing cancer, I don't know if we all get that cancer, but it means we all have those theories. His fear of sharks, his love of trucks, his inability to get Tim Cook's name right as opposed to Tim Apple. That's that's on us. We're all making those mistakes and having those fears and loving those trucks. He is us and we are him. Okay, now follow along, because this means that when his crowd chants, send them back, and afterwards, when he says, well, they said it, not me, even though it is true that when I say it, it means all of you, we could take him at his word in that instance. You're not following, are you? Okay, here's how it works. When the Cub Scouts give him a call and then deny giving him a call, what they're doing is calling All of us liars. Don't you get it? When New York State suspends the Trump Foundation from existing as a charity, they're questioning all of our charity, all of our beneficence, you and mine. Trump made this America is me and I am America. He made this point crystal clear when he said, We have great mental illness. The president did do another thing. That was presidential and humble, I have to say. He spoke of his time going to Dayton and El Paso and the hospitals there. And it was clear that the guy was just overwhelmed by the horrible scenes in the wake of those terrible shootings. He took some time to paint a very vivid picture of tumult and chaos as no doubt bodies came in and medical professionals tried to tend to the wounded. Let's hear a little bit of that. They were pouring out of the rooms. The doctors were coming out of the operating room. There were hundreds and hundreds of people all over the floor. You couldn't even walk on it. Wow. You know, this, I have to say, this must have been overwhelming and sad. And it does seem it must have been a little humbling, judging how he talked about it. But, you know, I don't want to be accused of not giving Donald Trump his full say. Let's wind back to the beginning of that sentiment to hear the full context of him putting the horrors of the day in perspective for all of us. So when I went to Dayton, And when I went to El Paso and I went into those hospitals, the love for me and me maybe as a representative of the country, but for me and my love for them was unparalleled. These are incredible people. But if you read the papers, it was like nobody would meet with me. Not only did they meet with me, they were pouring out of the rooms. The doctors were coming out of the operating rooms. There were hundreds and hundreds of people all over the floor. You couldn't even walk on it. Ah, so it was always about him, wasn't it? He is the sun. He is the light. He is the second coming. I am the chosen one. Oh, a Matrix reference. That was 1999. Got anything else in your pocket from about 2003? He raised interest rates too fast, too furious. I wanted to raise them the mummy returns. What are we doing? Just riffing on movie sequels now? Perhaps you've seen my impact on the once-nationed white nationalist movement, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. Don't worry, it's all being handled by my cabinet, my very capable cabinet. Get to know them, meet the fuckers. This is why I will win in November, and who knows, maybe I'll win a second term 
and then a third term. And as we will brand that re-re-election campaign. Clive Barker presents Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by PRBNMA for one and Daniel Schrader for two. Electric Boogaloo. The Gist, who went up a mountain and came down a hill of Gahul. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.